And I feel like people hate our celebrations and our arrogance a lot less than they hate the colors that we wear. Like, most everyone else gets kind of annoyed when we're just really good at stuff. And in this case, we're very good at a game the rest of the world loves a ton. And that we, you know, listen, we're growing soccer more and people enjoy it, especially because the women's program is so storied. But stateside, soccer is still really germinating over here, whereas everyone else, that is life and death. And we have taken that from them on the biggest stage possible. Sports Pen Monday afternoon on ESPN UP. Hi, everybody. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along as always for the last few days. Fourth of July holiday, my first one up here in Marquette. Let me say, you guys do it right. The Youpers celebrate the fourth right. This is the place to be. We had the Kawhi Leonard deal going down early Saturday morning. You had the Women's World Cup, the U.S. going back to back. Plus, tonight we kick off one of my favorite weeks of the entire sports calendar year, and that would be. All-Star Weekend. All that and more we're going to break down over the course of the next hour here on ESPN-UP. Glad to have you along as always. So the U.S. women's national team goes back-to-back. They win their fourth World Cup in team history with a 2-0 win over the Netherlands. Megan Rapino and Rose Lavelle score for the Americans. Rapino wins both the Golden Boot and the Golden Ball as the tournament's top scorer and top player overall, respectively. Rapino tied Alex Morgan for the most goals in the tournament, but she wins the Golden Boot. Alex Morgan wins the silver because of tiebreaker criteria, meaning that Rapino played less minutes than Morgan throughout the course of the tournament. So the U.S. has now won four of the eight women's World Cups that have taken place throughout history, and they are only the second women's team to go back-to-back, fourth overall. The only other time it's happened in the women's tournament was when Germany won back-to-back cups in 2003 and 2007. On the men's side of things, it's also happened twice. Italy did so back in 1934 and 1938, and then the Brazilian men in 1958 and 1962. So the U.S. dominates and they take another World Cup title. Meanwhile, the men, it was a disappointing night last night, falling in the Gold Cup final to Mexico, one nothing in Chicago. We're going to take a look at both those programs on the world stage, where they're at, where they're progressing. I really like what you heard from Mike Golick Jr. here in our intro. People just don't like it when the U.S. succeeds at stuff, especially when it's something that they pride themselves on. Soccer here is still somewhat of a hobby as compared to the four major sports. Soccer's still behind hockey. Now, they're trending in opposite directions, one would think, but over here, hockey still reigns supreme over soccer. And to see that same country win four of the eight World Cups, it can rub a few nations the wrong way. Now, on the men's side of things, the U.S. is still trying to get back on track. They missed out of the World Cup qualifiers about 20 months ago, falling to Trinidad. Last night, they competed in the Gold Cup final, losing to Mexico. Once again, Mexico always seems to have the U.S.'s number in the Gold Cup final. And you look at the U.S. over the course of this Gold Cup tournament. They've struggled against teams they shouldn't have. They struggled against Curacao. And then they thumped Trinidad, the team that kept them out of the World Cup last year. They battled Mexico really well. The U.S. had their chances early, and Mexico found a way to dominate the second half. This was a big learning curve for Greg Berhalter. He's starting to learn how to coach at an international level. He was just flat out outcoached in the second half last night. Now granted, those rosters that were on the field last night in Chicago could look a lot different than the rosters that either will put out for the World Cup qualifiers here in about a year. And there was improvement from the U.S. last night. There was even some reason to be encouraged. But we still have another step to take if we want to be competitive on the world stage. Do I think the U.S. will qualify for the 2022 World Cup? I do. How far they're going to go or how much of a force they're going to be? 
still very much remains to be seen. A lot of that is up in the air. But there has been progress. It was a big learning curve last night for Greg Berhalter. Maybe even some of the younger guys like Weston McKinney. There's a lot of raw, untapped potential on that U.S. men's national team. And they may grow more over the course of the next year as they get set to qualify for the World Cup than most of the years they're on this planet. Not just as a soccer player, but as a human being. So the women win yesterday and they are once again world champions. I tell you what though, I'm a little concerned with the victory tour. If you missed it, the U.S. is going on a victory tour, a victory lap of some sorts. They're going to play a series of international friendlies. They have already announced that they are going to be playing Ireland at the Rose Bowl coming up this fall. Now, the only reason I have a problem with that is this. If you want to promote women's soccer, you got to start at home first. If you want to promote it in America, you got to start with the highest national level. And most people, even if they're not soccer fans, are going to get up for the World Cup when it rolls around every four years. But if you really want soccer to grow in America, you've got to go to the highest level professionally. We've got a FIBA World Cup, basketball, coming up here in about a month. If we didn't have the NBA, we would likely have a lot of basketball fans and a lot of Americans who tune in just to see the American team play and then don't care about basketball for four more years. Same way with soccer. If we want to promote soccer here in the U.S., the MLS and the NWSL have to become bigger deals domestically. The problem I have with the U.S.'s victory tour is they kick it off against Ireland at the Rose Bowl on the same day when there are going to be eight NWSL games played. So not only are you taking the best players from those teams and playing them against Ireland, what are they going to watch? Are they going to watch the U.S. against Ireland? Or are they going to watch the National Women's Soccer League minus players who are good enough to play for Team USA? To me, that seems like you're hurting your own product. If you want to continue to grow soccer and its popularity, you've got to start domestic. You've got to bring in some homegrown interest. You do that by supporting the local professional leagues. If you go up to anybody right now, you ask them to name five professional MLS teams, I might be able to do that. I could not name five NWSL teams. I just couldn't. I tell you what, that was a conversation that was addressed yesterday after the U.S.'s victory. Megan Rapino has some thoughts on that. I mean, if you really care, are you letting the gap grow? Are you, I mean, are you scheduling three finals on the same day? No, you're not. Are you letting federations have their teams play two games in the four years between each tournament? No, you're not. So that's what I mean about the level of care. We need, we need attention and detail and the best minds that we can possibly have in the women's game, helping it grow. Think about what she just said. Really digest that audio. She's not talking about wages or equal pay. That's a big subject when you talk about wanting to grow women's soccer or how they're better than the U.S. men's team on the world stage. She's talking about the attention to detail that FIFA shows women's soccer. The bottom line is no matter what your feelings are toward women's sports, no matter how much revenue they generate as compared to the men or what the men are paid as compared to the women, the bottom line is FIFA just made a giant scheduling mistake. Putting an international friendly, the women's national team playing at the Rose Bowl while the NWSL season is in progress, more specifically while it's on a really big night in league play. Do you think FIBA could get away with scheduling a World Cup qualifier in January when the NBA's in progress? Absolutely, they'd never get away with that. No NBA teams would allow their players to go qualify. They want them in America or Toronto competing for a championship, playing for a playoff spot. If they had the World Baseball Classic in July instead of March every four years, do you think that the MLB would put their season on hold? 
Absolutely not. And that's where a lot of frustration is coming from members of the U.S. women's national team. I sympathize with them on a lot of levels. One being, what more can they do to show how dominant they are? How prominent they are on a world stage? They win back-to-back World Cups. They dominate everybody that was on the field against them. And yet FIFA can't even schedule their opening night of their victory tour on a night where there's no NWSL games. I get where the frustration comes from. Like, what more they need to do to get people to care, to pay attention to detail the same way they would for other sports? So no matter what your feelings are regarding equal pay or what the facts say about revenue generated, this is one thing we all should be able to agree on. I tell you what, I could go on and on about that, but I've got a few more things I want to get to here in this opening segment because the other biggest piece of breaking news that happened this weekend happened early Saturday morning. 2 a.m., in fact, I was in bed, just about to go to sleep. I'd been up celebrating long into the night, and I see breaking news on Twitter from Adrian Wojnarowski, our own Woj here at ESPN, our NBA insider. He breaks the news that we were all waiting for. Kawhi Leonard finally made his decision, and his decision was to go to the L.A. Clippers. The last piece to the puzzle, the last balance and power that we were waiting for, and for the first time in over a decade, there is parity in the NBA. There are no super teams. Two players a super team makes not. I'm still adamant that you need a big three at least to become a super team. LeBron James and Anthony Davis, they're pretty good. They're not a super team by themselves. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George mix those two with Pat Beverly and the Clippers will be the best defensive team in the NBA this year, but they're still not a super team. There is parity in the NBA. I said on my show last week when I was given my NBA playoff predictions, I get this feeling the Lakers are going to blow it somehow and not get the one seed in the West. I just didn't know who would take advantage, whose roster was good enough as it was. Now we have our answer. I trust the Clippers. I do. It's going to be really fun watching LeBron and AD battle PG and Kawhi. But when you compare the coaches, Frank Vogel, who's already got his replacement on the bench with him, and Doc Rivers, one of the most decorated coaches in NBA history. You couple Doc Rivers' ability with the way the Clippers are able to play defense, and certainly the offensive output is there between Kawhi, PG, and others, and the Clippers should be the odds-on favorite in the West. In fact, the latest title odds have the Clippers as the favorite to win the NBA title overall. The balance of power shifted in the NBA early Saturday morning, and they did just that. They balanced the power in the NBA. There is no Golden State this year. There is no one team who's going to run away with the title that we all know is going to be at least half of the finals matchup. There is sweet, sweet parity in the NBA. I don't buy into that where people say you need a team to root against. You need somebody to hate. You need someone to take on the villain role like Golden State did after Kevin Durant went there. I don't buy that. I like the mystery. I like not knowing who's going to be in the finals come next June. If you want somebody to root against, root against your team's rival. Cheer against them every time they're on TV. You don't need another super team in the NBA just so you can have somebody to root against. The most interesting thing about the NBA these last few years has been free agency, has been the drama off the court. It's been much better than the product that they put on the floor. This year, the product has a chance to match what happens off the court. If you can be as popular as you are without a suspenseful product on the floor... Just think how popular you're going to be with one. Last week I did say that there was one playoff power that was not going to make it back there this year, and that was Oklahoma City. And granted, this isn't the way that I thought it would happen, 
I didn't expect Paul George to go join Kawhi Leonard, but I think it's pretty safe to say this will be a rebuilding year for Oklahoma City. They're starting to ship out a few pieces. They sent Jeremy Grant to Denver earlier this morning. So how long does Russell Westbrook stay there? Yeah, he's inefficient at times, but he's still an all-NBA caliber guard. A guy who can average a triple-double in the right system. So what about this? What if the Toronto Raptors put together a package for Russell Westbrook? They have all this money they were willing to pay Kawhi Leonard. He doesn't resign there, so now they're left without a superstar and a lot of money. Who are they going to spend it on? They picked up Rondé Hollis-Jefferson and Stanley Johnson over the weekend, quietly doing so. Yet that still doesn't make me think Toronto's going to be better than a 7 seed in the East this year. So why not put a nice little package together and go after Russell Westbrook? It might be a package that includes Pascal Siakam. In fact, I think he has to be part of it. The most improved player in the NBA this year? He'd be the kind of rebuilding piece that Oklahoma City would need. You put him in, maybe a draft pick, a player like Rondé Hollis-Jefferson or Stanley Johnson, send him over for Russ. Adding Russ to that lineup could immediately put Toronto back in the top half of the East. Now, granted, you're losing some key pieces from last year's team that won the finals in Siakam. Danny Green's already re-signed with the Lakers. But Toronto was the number one seed in the East a couple of years ago without Siakam playing a large role, without Danny Green. In fact, they did that with DeMar DeRozan as their star player. And is Russell Westbrook better than DeMar DeRozan? Absolutely he is. To me, that is the move for Toronto. They got a trade for Russell Westbrook. I already cannot wait for opening night of the NBA season. I really can't. And it's been a while since I've felt that way unless my team was playing. This might be the year that we've been waiting for ever since the Big Three era started about a decade ago. We have been waiting for a time where the on-court product is better than what happens off the court. Kawhi Leonard, for a guy who doesn't like to talk a lot, sure does a lot of talking behind the scenes. Nobody saw Paul George coming to L.A. Kawhi doesn't recruit KD, but he does recruit Paul George. And that makes the Clippers NBA favorites this year instead of waiting for Durant next year. The Clippers were good enough that if Kawhi went there, I would have said they would be favorites in the West anyway. And then they go out and they add Paul George. Now they're over the top. Now they should be the top team in the West. But it still wouldn't be a total disappointment if they didn't because the Lakers have a good enough team to do it. The Rockets could look a lot different by the time the season tips off. For the first time in almost a decade, keep in mind San Antonio was the dominant team in the West before Golden State. For the first time in almost 10 years, there is a real question mark regarding who could win the NBA's Western Conference. With that, let's take a timeout. When we come back, Charlie Bramer joins me for the Wisconsin Sports Update. Got some thoughts on the Brewers he wants to share with us. That is coming up next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along this Monday afternoon. It is time for the Wisconsin Sports Update. Charlie Bramer in studio with us to give us a lowdown on the Bucks, Brewers, Packers, and everything in between. What's up, Charlie? I am super glad to be here, Tanner. How are you, man? Good. Good. Appreciate it. you have a good 4th? I did have a good 4th. And this 4th of July, more than ever before, you know, it's like always the fireworks and, and you just love going out to the lake or whatever. And But this year, the 4th, I just loved the patriotism, the nationalism. I was sitting at the the 4th of July, like, cookout people talking about what they heard on InfoWars and people talking about what they heard on CNN. But we were all agreeing how awesome it was 
just celebrating the country's freedom, and, and that's something we can all agree on. So I don't know, 4th of July is making a tough push for my favorite holiday. It's always been Thanksgiving, but the 4th is moving up there. Oh, that's a pretty good one. Those are both pretty good ones. It's tough for me to pick, but I tell you what, I love how we transition from the 4th right into All-Star Week, MLB nice. style. Nice, I love it too, and and they go hand in hand so they do. well. Absolutely. I'm glad they're having the All-Star Game early this year. Home Run Derby this evening, All-Star Game tomorrow. You can hear both here on ESPN-UP as well as our other 250 ESPN radio affiliates. Well, Christian Yelich not going to participate tonight's Home Run Derby. It's kind of disappointing, but he's dealing with a back injury. That, however, may be the least of the Brewers' problems as they're going through a little bit of an offensive slump having dropped six of their last ten. Yeah, and, and it really goes... It's just been a prolonged slump. Um, pitching, pitching problems. I, I was looking at, at so many individual statistics, and then statistics as a team. And and the one thing, you know, I'm trying to look glass half full here. There is a lot of a lot of ground that can be easily picked up. The NL Central, you know, the Reds being in last place are closer to first place than any other team in any other division in baseball who, who's in second place. I, I don't know if I'm wording that right, but but it's just, I mean, the division is so close, and the Reds are closer than any other second-place team in first place. There, that's, that's what I really wanted and to say. And the Reds are fifth in their division, first through fifth in the NL Central, separated by four and a half games. Yeah, and and really any of those teams get hot. I mean, it's going to be tough to hold off the Cubs because the Cubs are going to have a six-week stretch where they're, where they're going to be lights out. And and that's the real shame of it right now. If the Brewers would have played just halfway decent baseball, just 500 baseball, they were 10 games over 500 a few weeks ago, just play some 500 baseball. They'd be in great shape right now. You can't count out Pittsburgh even though they're below 500 at the break. You can't count out Cincinnati even though they're five below. Yeah, and, and Cincinnati's been beating up on NL Central teams. They play some out-of-division games that you'd expect them to win them, and they drop them. Mm-hmm. They could easily be within two-and-a-half games at the All-Star break right now, but they lost their last couple. Yeah, Milwaukee half a game out of the All-Star break, sitting 47-44. and 44. Then you have St. Louis playing 500 baseball. They're two behind Chicago. Pittsburgh one below 500 at two-and-a-half games back. And then Cincinnati 41-46, and four-and-a-half out. So it's tight throughout that Central. Realistically, there are probably about three teams that could win that division. But mathematically, it's not out of the question for five teams to make a push for it. Certainly, and, and there was a while... Where we were looking, man, there's there's going to be you know obviously the division winner, and both wild card teams could have came out of the NL they Central, could. and and they still could, but it is unreal for that for for the final wild card spot. The last time I looked, I'm sure it's changed a little bit. But the last time I looked, I believe there was seven or eight teams within three and a half games of that last wild card spot. That's going to make it a lot harder for teams to make moves this trading deadline, and 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 teams like the Brewers, you know, they've they've been able to pick up guys like Joaquin Soria and and different relievers at the midway point of the season that have really made an impact um, the last couple of years, 2017, 2018. It's going to be a lot harder to get those guys cheap, um, and they've been able to get some relievers on, uh, you know, for some just minor, you know, low-level prospects. 
Um, but this year it's going to cost a little bit more because there's going to be a lot less teams selling those those relievers that are that are impact type players. That's a really good point that you make, where you've got so many teams that still have a shot. Some of them better shot than others, but. Later this month, they're really going to have to make a decision. Are we going to be buyers or sellers? Because realistically, are we going to contend for a pennant this year? That would be teams like San Francisco maybe sitting seven below 500, but only five and a half games out of the wild card. There are nine teams outside the playoff picture that are within seven games of the NL wild card. Right, and, and, and I really like that you brought up San Francisco. They have you know Will Smith, left-hander, um, had time with the Brewers. Um, the Brewers actually traded him to the Giants for Andrew Susak. It was a trade that didn't really actually turn out too well for the mm-hmm. crew. Um, but but uh, Will Smith is having one of the best relief seasons in all of baseball mm-hmm. right now. Extremely consistent, which, which is exactly what these teams are looking for. And and the the whole Craig Kimbrell thing has not been going so well for the Cubs. Last I saw, his ERA was like over thirty or something crazy. Yeah, like he's that. not been great. I think it's not like sixteen now. No, not been great at Shouldn't all. Shouldn't held out. That's a whole philosophical thing. I'm sure he thought he was ready. Mm-hmm. And and you would think him more than anyone would know what it takes to be ready to face major league talent. It's um, working out for Keuchel though, but yeah. not Kimbrel. Yeah, and, and but it seems like Dallas Keuchel was doing a little bit more. Um, I, I believe he was facing live hitters and, mm. and was he was pitching every fifth day, uh, seventy to eighty pitches every fifth day this whole time, risking that injury. I don't think uh, Craig Kimbrell. I, I'm not sure exactly what he was doing. Obviously, he had to go down to the minors for quite a bit longer. Um, but oh man, I I think that's gonna really help kind of shake things out earlier in the season teams aren't going to want to wait so long to sign these guys and and these guys are going to know that that if they're going to hold out that long they're really going to be losing money let me ask you this given the brewer's salary cap situation maybe some of their prospects what they could put together around the trade deadline what would it take to get mad bum do they have any interest, would you think? As a Brewers fan, would you be interested in getting Mad Bum? I would. I certainly would. He's been pitching well. Um, the Brewers could use that 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 starter, obviously. They've needed that for years. Starting pitching, you know, this could be interesting. Obviously, Will Smith is going to have – he's going to command a high price tag for a reliever. Mm-hmm. I don't know, really. I think Madison Bumgarner might be able to – be bought for a lesser price than what we've been expecting. Think so. And and the Brewers really have obviously they're going to come calling for Keston here. That's going to be completely off the table. Mm-hmm. If if Bumgarner came with some team control, it might be an option. Like Mauricio Dubon, who who the Brewers called up on Sunday. Um, I mean. He he's just tearing it up in Triple A San Antonio. When I looked at his numbers, why wasn't he called up? Why did they, <laughs> why did they call up Keston? Or why? Obviously, we know why they called up Keston Hero. Well, why did they call up Tyler Saladino yep. instead of Dubon? I mean, obviously Saladino plays the outfield spots. He started in the left field a couple times for Ryan Braun already, and and that's something that's really been getting me. Uh, obviously, the Brewers want Ryan Braun ready going down the stretch, but but there's. The end of the first half is kind of a stretch run in and of itself. And and Braun only played, I believe he started one of the last five games mm. going down this stretch, and they really could have used his bat. He pinch hit every one of those games, I believe. 
and and he was running well. He, you know, says says stiff back. Uh, he he's got a bulky knee. They say, you know, twenty years ago, it it really would have been like guys would have been out there playing for respect, if anything. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of rubbing me the wrong way. The Brewers really needed some of these games. And and yesterday, their lineup, half of it was just AAA guys. Yeah. And that's just not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it against the Pirates right now. The Pirates lineup, 1 through 8 yesterday, everybody had a batting average above two seventy eight. How about that? I mean, that is just impressive. Adam Frazier's been killing the Brewers his batting average went up three and a half points. They faced him last week. He's batting two fifty three. After this series against the Brewers, it's up into the two nineties. Mm. Just, <laughs> I mean, that's obviously just torching. He's been playing all year too. So to get so to get that much gain on his batting average before the All Star break, I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like that. Yeah, and the Brewers will be okay with not seeing Brian Reynolds for a while. Oh, certainly a- any of those guys and Pirates pitching staff. Really did a good job of figuring out the Brewers. Joe Musgrove, he pitched fantastically. The Brewers have torched him lately. One bright spot, you know, Jesus Aguilar is my favorite, favorite Brewers player. Had a good series. And he had a fantastic series. He finally came around, had a double, uh, three home runs and two starts. And and he was just, for for about the last 10 days, you could really see that he was working counts and he was taking his walks, and you're just waiting for him to hit that first opposite field home run. And then when he did, it, it seems like it's 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 all come coming back. And and if they could have him going for the second half, because no matter how good Christian Yelich is, we cannot expect him to carry this team like he did the first two and a half months. Especially if he's got a sore back. Yeah, now. look what's it done to his back. Exactly. Carrying that team. Yeah, carrying that team exactly. Jesus Aguilar is a big man. Um, Christian Yelts is carrying all these guys. Yeah, it's hurting his back. But but there are so much, so many areas where these guys, you know, Mike Musakis is 12 for his last 60. Um, Lorenzo Cain, career, over career 290 hitter, is batting only 296. Yasmani Grandal is 10 for his last 48. Eric Thanes has a 167 average this last week. Jesus Aguilar is the one, he raised his average three and a half points. Mm. Obviously, he didn't have the sample size Adam Frazier did. He's got a season OPS over 710 now. So I thought that was pretty impressive. But then they called up Mauricio Dubon on somebody yesterday, on Sunday, made his major league debut. Down in AAA in 83 games, he has 105 hits, 19 doubles, 14 home runs, a 307 average. 835 OPS, mm. just really solid. They believe he's above average shortstop. He's a plus defensive second baseman. He could steal 30, 40 bases a year at the major league level. And he was putting up numbers even bigger than this last year at AAA for the first two months before he tore his ACL. He's made a complete comeback. He's playing fantastic. I think he might be someone the Brewers look to move mm-hmm. if they don't want to hold on to him. If they don't move him. I predict he, he'll be a big part of this roster for the second half of the season. How likely is it that Travis Shaw could be a player that they move? You know, he struggled this year, but he's still a big league bat. you got to think that at least they could sell optimism to somebody. You know, obviously the the 65-plus home runs last two years combined, that's not a fluke. He hit two home runs the other day in a game down in AAA San Antonio. To send him down like that and use that last move that he had available – 
obviously still has several years of team control, but they're gonna they're gonna really make sure his bat is back before he uh, gets a call back to the majors. And and you know they call up Tyler Saladino. He's been batting not he had a 940 OPS in AAA. I'm talking two weeks ago whenever it was about wow how he's been killing and how unreal it is. They have called up so many guys from AAA this year that have just not been able to contribute anything at the major league level. Aaron Wilkerson, in 10-plus starts, had a sub-2 ERA. Birch Smith, in 13 career starts. Both of these guys had major league experience, including Tyler Saladino. So all three of them have the major league experience. So, so you expect them to be able to handle it. Birch Smith comes in the other day, gives up six runs. I don't understand. You think these guys would be able to parlay it into into some sort of success at the major league level. Tyler Saladino, I believe he's two for his first 30. I mean, you you would think he'd be able to at least hit for a 700 OPS after going for a 940 in AAA. It's just that's baseball, right? You just put your hand, throw your hands up, that's baseball. That's why I love the game. Tanner Hoops, Charlie Bramer with you in the sports pen. I want to get to some Bucks and Packers talk. we got to take a timeout, though. We'll come back to it next in the sports pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the sports pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops, Charlie Bramer with you. Glad to have you along in this Monday afternoon. Here's your Sports Center update. 15-year-old Coco Goff Cinderella run at Wimbledon comes to an end in the round of 16. She fell in straight sets earlier this afternoon to Simona Hillip. The Atlanta Hawks have signed former Duke star Jabari Parker to a two-year deal. Elsewhere, the Lakers ink Avery Bradley to a two-year contract. And finally, 20-year-old Matt Wolf finished 21 strokes under par to win the 3M Open in Blaine, Minnesota this weekend. When asked how he's playing to celebrate, Wolf answered, I don't know probably with a virgin margarita. What is it with all these athletes who are not old enough to buy alcohol that are doing things that I could only dream about? Matt Wolf, 20 years old, winning the 3M Open. Coco Goff, a round of 16 finalist at Wimbledon. Ronald Acuna Jr. is going to start in the All-Star game tomorrow. Makes me feel old, wondering what I've been doing with all my life. Tanner Hoops, Charlie Bramer with you in the sports pen. The Wisconsin sports update continues on. Well, the Packers and Bucks are both in the offseason, both of them a little bit quiet, more than we thought they might be. Charlie, any idea what's going on in those front offices? You know, it, it was interesting. I'm not exactly sure what day it was. Everybody's probably pretty aware of the Bucks signing Wesley Matthews. That's going to be... I liked that. that. That was a great move. I really thought he could have commanded... You know, there, there's been a lot of those two-year, $10 million deal, deals going down. Um, I really thought he would have got, you know, something in the two-year, $10, 12000000 million range. But, hey, he's willing to sign with a contender for for a league vet minimum. The Bucks will definitely take it. There are several guys available. Kyle Korver is not technically available yet, looking to be bought out. I really think he would be a huge boost to this Bucks team. They play a good team defense, a good help defense. Um, it would kind of mitigate what obviously his weakness is, which we all know is defense. But if he can come out and hit 40% of his threes, you know, Giannis driving and dishing it to him, I, that would really be um, to to have Giannis out there driving the ball, dishing it to guys like Wesley Matthews, Kyle Korver. Malcolm Brogdon was able to get him big buckets and big times. You know, he, he could beat his man off the ball one-on-one. 
because because that spread that spread offense, you know, it helps Giannis drive. Well, it helped Malcolm Brogdon drive a lot mm-hmm. too. So I'm interested to see how his game translate to Indiana, where they don't have that superstar and 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 they have good shooters. You know, not quite Chris Middleton and Malcolm Brogdon and and, and the three point shooters coming off the bench. So it's going to be interesting to see how uh, a slightly collapsed defense affects Malcolm Brogdon. But then again, his contract was a lot more friendly, uh, team friendly than I thought it was going to be too. Yeah, this, is this the first time we've had you on since Brogdon was dealt to Indiana? Um, since since the trade's been official, right? Um, I believe we did discuss it a little bit last week. You know, I guess I'm just trying to, in my head, kind of mitigate that loss. You know, I'm kind of trying to. Well, we got to we got to keep the rest of the guys mm-hmm. and and kind of interesting. One move the Bucks did made, they signed Thanasis on it to Kumbo from. He was playing from uh, you know a team in Greece. I believe he won MVP the last two years. In the Any league. relation? Yeah, right. Um, um, yeah, brothers, older brother of Giannis, and um, so now all three brothers are back in the NBA. He's going to be playing summer league for the Bucks, you know. And and after watching some video on him, you think Giannis is athletic? Oh man, if if Thanasis was two or three inches taller, he he would be the other Giannis right now. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit bigger, stronger. But when I say bigger, beefier. Obviously, Giannis is beefed up quite a bit, so that just get, goes to show you how big and strong Thanasis is. Extremely athletic, extremely good defender. Doesn't have much of a shot. You know, a slasher, a driver good defense get you some fast break buckets off the steals it's gonna be interesting to see if he can make this team with a good summer league he 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 might be able to make a push towards making this team that's the type of guy that a team like the bucks might be interested in holding on to for defensive purposes and uh really shore up that defense like i said hold on to some leads later in the game but they have several roster spots that are available it's gonna be interesting to see how they fill them you know they had guys like christian wood last year that they let walk for nothing and now they have these open roster spots um i really really expect them to make some moves they got these draft picks from their previous trades they have not done anything with john lure yet do they think they're going to be able to trade his whole contract get that all off the books Mm -hmm. or or are they just going to spread it out over three years are they going to use those picks to acquire another veteran or are they going to use those picks to to dump that salary I can't believe I'm really, really surprised they haven't made any of these moves yet, and they they just kind of have me frozen in time, just wondering and wondering and wondering, and and always thinking while they're waiting, what does that mean? Let's talk about the Bucks summer league. They tipped it off in Vegas the other night. They got beat by Philadelphia Friday. They bounced back yesterday with a really nice win over Atlanta, 89-83. They outscored the Hawks 27-15 in that fourth quarter. Got some really good contributions from guys like Sterling Brown, who started five playoff games for them. Bonzi Colson with 18. Yeah, Bonzi Colson, one of your Notre Dame guys. Yes. He might be a guy that... that I could really see sticking with this team this year. He had some 15.18 rebound games last year. It wasn't a fluke. Like, I can really play, and and he provides a it, – it seems like a much more solid defensive presence than what I thought. Have you gotten a chance to watch the Bucks in the summer league yet? Any guys you've been impressed with? You know, I'm always impressed with DJ Wilson. Mm. Sterling Brown has always been impressive in summer league. He's just one of those guys that – 
He has nothing to prove in Summer League, nothing to prove in the D-League. We know he's an NBA talent. It's just all about that consistency, right? And I don't know if it's just the big stage, what it is, but he's got to be able to put it together. He's a guy the Bucks are really going to be counting on this year. And just watching this Bucks Summer League team, the defense has looked you know, you know, like holding holding any NBA team, even if it's only summer league under eighty five points, you love that. Mm-hmm. You, you just gotta love that. They're playing. They're obviously playing really hard. If you had to predict, what would be the starting five for Milwaukee this season, as we know the roster right now? Oh man, that's a great question because I think it's going to be the same four. You know, Brooke, Giannis, Chris Middleton, um, Eric Bledsoe. And and then probably Wesley Matthews at this point, hmm. but I bet they go Sterling Brown. Yeah. Um. They might they might go Dante Divincenzo. They could go hmm. um Pat Connaughton in that spot. I I would really like to see them go Pat Connaughton in that spot. Although they seem to prefer his energy off the bench. So so I would think Sterling Brown, seeing as how you know he started like you said he started the playoff games. Right. So he's obviously a guy that they believe in as a starter, and it just kind of seems. You know, all these guys, as as I've seen them play, they've kind of played better off the bench in the past. So since Matthews has all that experience, it wouldn't surprise me if he was the starter. But then again, from what I've read, there's a lot of people saying the Bucks are going to like his energy off the bench. So so who's it going to be? That might be uh, one of those revolving spots the first few weeks of the season till somebody really locks it in. Well, I tell you what, when you look at some of the guys that they brought in this year, uh, among that group is Robin Lopez. They complete the tandem. They complete yep. the tandem of Lopez brothers. Yeah, it's kind of funny because Brooke took a contract that some people were thinking was a little low. Maybe maybe he had – it's incredible, obviously, what, what guys have shown around the league as far as – you know, we always knew this was a player league, but now the power that these guys are, are showing that they have as far as – convincing front offices to to do their deeds and and go their way the bucks have two pairs of brothers on the team yes that that stuff doesn't happen by coincidence robin getting that two-year deal i mean brooke had to have something to do with that kind of like what we're seeing in la with paul george going to the clippers you know it's like Kawhi and these players they're making front offices uh do their bidding and and it's a players league now more than ever Well, I tell you what, when you look at the Eastern Conference as it is right now, we now know Kawhi's not coming to Toronto, regardless of who they might fill in his place. I still don't think they're even going to be a top-half team in the East right now. Unless they go out and get Russell Westbrook, I still don't think they're going to finish in the top half of the conference. Regardless of what happened with Kawhi, I had the Bucs winning the Eastern Conference regular season title. Do you feel the same way? Are you optimistic about that? Do you feel it's kind of a reach, but you're hopeful? How do you feel about the Bucks' chances in the East? I feel extremely, extremely confident that they can get to 60 wins again, uh, especially considering the best teams in the conference last year, the Raptors, the, uh, the 76ers, the Celtics. The Bucks really handled those teams in the regular season. And it's essentially the same core of players, obviously, minus Malcolm Brogdon. So so you really like their chances as a regular season team. There should be no reason, barring major injuries, that they can't repeat that. But it's now they have to become that playoff team, which that's the that's a whole part of the going from being a young, good regular season team to being that veteran 
team with playoff experience. Now it's time. It's time. It, they've been saying in Milwaukee for a long time, you know, whatever, future this, future that. No, the future is here now. Mm-hmm. And really it was last year. But now more than ever, the future is here, and they must win now. I think the East is going to be down a little bit toward the top. Certainly. Toronto's not going to be the team they were last year. Everyone is high on Philadelphia. I don't think Philadelphia is going to be as good as last year. To me, you don't bring in Al Horford to replace Jimmy Butler and expect to be as good. I just don't see that. It's not a knock on Horford, but he's not Jimmy Butler. He doesn't solve your shooting needs. And Boston, I don't think, got worse this offseason. I don't think they got a whole lot better. I think you put in Walker and Cantor. And they're a pretty good substitution for Kyrie and Horford, but I don't know if they really elevate you. So those three teams didn't really get better this offseason. Brooklyn got better, but Kyrie by himself is not going to make them a contender. Kyrie and Durant might, but that's still a year away. Indiana lost Boyan Bogdanovich, but they do bring in uh, Malcolm Brogdon. I think Miles Turner set to take a step forward. Indiana might be better but they're still not ready to contend with the Bucks. To me, the East still runs through Milwaukee. I thought Boston, out of all the teams, I, I just really, Kemba Walker is going to have to really, you know, he, he proved he can be that player last year, but that was not on a very good team. Mm-hmm. So he's going to have to prove he can be that player on a good team. If that's the case, Boston will be in all right shape for, you know, anywhere for a two to four seed in the East. Philadelphia kind of worries me come playoff time. Regular season, like you said, I I think it goes to Milwaukee. I honestly think they added Al Horford. What was it? The last two games against Milwaukee, Giannis scored, I think, a combined 95 points and Mm. had like 40 rebounds against Philadelphia. They had no answers for Giannis defensively. And and who was the one that played Giannis so good defensively? Al Horford. So I really think that... They had that in mind when they added him. Well, I tell you what, last couple of minutes, let's transition over to the gridiron. The Packers have been kind of like Milwaukee. They've been kind of quiet now making a lot of moves. Yeah, and that's what that that was basically the comment I was going to make before. It just sums it up. There, there are veteran players out there that they could add extremely cheap, and they just haven't done it. You know, You know, they made their moves early, spent a ton of money, Obviously, they could bring in more guys. Um, you know, Brian Gutekunst is talking about how this team would, and, and, and then players, too, have, have talked about Aaron Rodgers has made this a big point in the past, how this team has, has filled out the last two, three roster spots with undrafted free agents the last several years. Um, they had success with that under Ted Thompson, and those players would oftentimes get second contracts with the Packers more than any under more than any other team undrafted free agents were having success with the Packers and that has not been the case lately. I mean, it's win now. Aaron Rodgers is over 35 years old. They must win now. You would think that they'd be looking to get the veterans that they want now making them the offer, not waiting, making sure they have all of training camp. Obviously, there's still a few weeks away before it starts. They still have time to add these guys. Players like Billy Turner and and the Smiths, they're going to make their big contributions. They're probably going to be starters. But then again, it's great to have these veterans on special teams, and and it's great to have these veterans for weeks 12 through 16 when there's injury instead of relying on these undrafted free agents. And there are a few players from last year's draft that did not participate in football last year that have come back. 
Cole Madison is is a player that comes to mind. They didn't play last year. So, yeah, they're coming back, but they don't have any NFL experience. They're mm-hmm. essentially rookies. So, so I just I'm, – I'm really curious. Every time I go online and every time I'm hearing about the Packers, I'm waiting for a move, and, and there just hasn't been one. As a uh, Packer fan, you study them closely – do you believe there will be a move before the start of the season? I really think they're 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 oh I I would expect them to bring in a, a veteran middle linebacker, perhaps another veteran defensive back. The two first round draft picks this year, you love them. Kevin King put it together. You know all those guys. Yeah, if they stay healthy and if they play up to their potential, I mean we're talking several Pro Bowlers in that defensive backfield, but. What about the last several years? That hasn't been the case. So, so why not add that that veteran player that can give you solid special teams, play cheap, and then come in and play and not be overwhelmed when when all of a sudden here he is in Lambeau Field and it's December and the Packers are looking to get into the playoffs. Tanner Hoops, Charlie Bramer with you in the sports pen. Glad to have you along as always. Glad to have you here, my man. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for updating us. Thank you so much, Tanner. And on Wisconsin with the great sports, I I hope the Brewers can put it together. Let's take a time out when we come back. The Home Run Derby this evening. We break it down next in the sports pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, check it out on demand. Get our free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just look up ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you as we close down the workday on this Monday afternoon. Well, I tell you what, I love All-Star Week. Major League Baseball does All-Star festivities better than any other league. They really do. And it kicks off tonight with the Home Run Derby, which, by the way, you can hear here on ESPN-UP, as well as with our app. Get that free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. And use it to listen to tonight's Home Run Derby. Our coverage begins at 8 Eastern, 7 Central. It's also available on ESPN TV. I'm going to be sitting back and watching some guys blast some dingers out of the park. Put on a show for the fans out there in Cleveland. I already can't wait. I'm going to have something tasty to munch on. Lots to wash her down with. I'll be in my favorite chair. If you need me tonight, try not to need me after 8 o'clock. It's going to be All-Star time. Home Run Derby and then the Celebrity All-Star Game. One of the most underrated parts of All-Star Week. That's one of my favorite things. I know it's pre-recorded, it's pre-taped, they put it on after the Home Run Derby, but it's still a lot of fun, and I can't wait for it to get going. Home Run Derby tonight, All-Star Game tomorrow, both on ESPN TV and radio, as well as ESPN UP. Hey, before we get into the eight contestants in the Home Run Derby this evening, we break each of them down. Just a couple hours ago, the starting lineups for each team have been announced. Let me give them to you in case you miss them. We'll start with the National League. They'll be the visitors on the scoreboard. They're managed by Dave Roberts. Christian Yelich leads off and plays left field, the MLB leader in home runs. Again, he is pulled out of tonight's Home Run Derby with a back injury. As of right now, he's penciled in to lead off tomorrow night for the National League. We'll let you know if that changes. Javier Baez bats second, plays short. Freddie Freeman bats third, plays first. Cody Bellinger in right field is the NL cleanup batter. Nolan Arenado bats fifth and plays third. Josh Bell will DH and hit sixth. Wilson Contreras bats seventh, he will catch. Kettle Marte at second base hits eighth, and Ronald Acuna Jr. in center field bats ninth. Starting pitcher for the National League is Hinjin Roo. By the way, he's making history tomorrow night. He will become the first ever Korean-born pitcher to start an all-star game. 
So once again for the National League, managed by Dave Roberts, Yelich, Baez, Freeman, Bellinger, Arenado, Bell, Contreras, Marte, Acuna with Rue on the bump. For the American League, they'll be the home team in Cleveland. They are managed by Alex Cora. George Springer leads off and plays right. DJ LeMayhew at second base, bats second. Mike Trout in center field hitting third. The cleanup batter is the hometown first baseman, Carlos Santana. J.D. Martinez bats fifth. He'll be the D.H. Alex Bregman plays third and bats sixth. Hitting seventh and doing the catching, Gary Sanchez. Michael Brantley bats eighth in left field. Batting ninth is the shortstop, Jorge Polanco. Starting pitcher for the American League is Justin Verlander. It'll be his second start in the Midsummer Classic. He did so previously back in 2012. Again for the American League, managed by Alex Cora, Springer, LeMahieu, Trout, Santana, Martinez, Bregman, Sanchez, Brantley, Polanco with Verlander on the bump. Those are the starting lineups for tomorrow night's All-Star game. The AL comes in riding a six-game winning streak. National League's got a pretty good team together, and they're hungry for their first win since 2012. Well, with that, we've got the Home Run Derby to look forward to tonight. Here are the eight participants. We're going to give you the bracket and then break them down one by one. The top seed was Christian Yelich, the MLB leader in home runs. He has pulled out due to a back injury. He's replaced by Oakland third baseman Matt Chapman. He will square off against the eight seed Vlad Guerrero Jr. of Toronto in the first round. The 4-5 matchup, Alex Bregman, Houston third baseman, is the four seed. Jock Peterson, the Dodgers outfielder, is the five. On the other side of the bracket, the second seed is Pete Alonso, the Mets' first baseman. He squares off against Cleveland's first baseman, Carlos Santana, the seventh seed. Josh Bell, the Pittsburgh first baseman, he'll be the NLDH tomorrow, is the three seed. And he squares off against Ronald Acuna Jr., the six-seeded center fielder from Atlanta. So that is the bracket for this evening. Once again, the action starts at 8 o'clock. Let's break down the competitors one by one. Again, Matt Chapman will fill in for Christian Yelich as the one seed. 21 home runs this year. His longest coming at 441 feet. His hardest hit home run, 113.3 miles an hour. That came against the Angels back on May 27th. Chapman's always been known as a power hitter, but he's continuing to raise the bar for himself this season. Last year, he had a total of 24 throughout the year. He's got 21 at the All-Star break this season. Also, his slugging percentage has jumped nearly 30 points from last year. And measuring the hardest hit home runs, Chapman has two of the top five. Chapman has the ability to spray the ball. He's got power to all fields. In fact, 28 of his 59 career home runs have come either to straightaway center or he's gone the opposite way. Chapman is the one seed this evening. Again, his first round matchup is Vlad Guerrero Jr. He's only got eight home runs this year, but keep in mind he missed the first month of the season. He made his debut around April. His longest this season, 451 feet. That came May 14th in San Francisco. That was also his hardest hit home run at 113.7 miles an hour. He is the youngest participant ever in home run derby history. 20 years old, 114 days. Previous record was held by Ken Griffey Jr. Guerrero loves the ball in the low part of the zone. Seven of his eight home runs this year have come off of pitches that have been thrown in the lower third of the strike zone. Alex Bregman is the four seed this evening, 22 home runs. His longest 440 feet, that came April 21st at Texas. He had a 105-mile-an-hour home run May 7th at home against Kansas City. Bregman isn't the typical home run hitter. He's not huge in stature, and he's much more of a contact hitter than a masher. 
You might remember Bregman from last year's Home Run Derby in Washington, D.C. Him and Kyle Schwarber were in a battle in the first round. He launched 15 home runs in that first round, but took an exit to Schwarber, who was just on fire. He will square off against Jock Peterson in the first round. Peterson with 20 home runs, 445 feet his longest. That came on the last day of May at home against Philadelphia. His hardest hit ball, 113.7 miles an hour May 10th against Washington. He joins Alex Bregman as the only competitors tonight who have been in the home run derby before, but Peterson is the only competitor who's gone beyond the first round. Peterson competed in the 2015 Home Run Derby at Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. He beat Manny Machado in the first round. Then Albert Pujols ended up getting beat by hometown favorite Todd Frazier, who was still with the Reds back then, in the finals. By the way, here's a free scouting report if you're going up against Jock Peterson anytime soon. Pitch a lefty against him. All 20 of his home runs this year have come against right-handed pitchers. So I'm assuming that whoever Jock chooses to have pitched to him this evening will be a right-hander. Pete Alonso is the two-seed, 28 home runs, that is already a New York Mets rookie record. His longest this year came June 15th at home against the Cardinals, 458 feet. His hardest hit home run this season, 118.3 miles an hour. That came in Atlanta back on April 11th. Alonso's short career is off to a historic pace. How about this? His 28 home runs at the All-Star break are the fourth highest of any rookie in MLB history, behind just Mark McGuire, Aaron Judge, and Jose Abreu. That's pretty good company to be a part of. He is one of the best in baseball in terms of exit velocity. His 118.3 mile an hour home run is tied with Gary Sanchez for the hardest hit home run of the season. And Alonzo is second Major League Baseball in home runs that have exceeded 110 miles an hour behind only Gary Sanchez. Sanchez has 12, Alonzo has 11. The seventh seed is Carlos Santana, 18 home runs this year. He'll be in his home ballpark. His longest home run this year, he's actually done it twice, 426 feet, May 18th at home against Baltimore, and then June 12th also at home against Cincinnati. His hardest hit home run this year was 109.5 miles an hour June 1st in Chicago, as in guaranteed rate field, home of the White Sox. Now, Santana's used to progressive field. He's played nine of his ten professional seasons with Cleveland. He's got 97 home runs at progressive field. That puts him fourth all-time in that ballpark's history, behind only Jim Tomey, Manny Ramirez, and Travis Hafner. He is a switch hitter, but his power comes from the left-hand side of the box. He has hit 75% of his career home runs from the left-hand side and 15 of his 18 this season. And finally, the 3-6 matchup. The three-seed is Josh Bell, 25 home runs this year for the Pittsburgh first baseman. His longest this season, 474 feet. That came at home April 7th against Cincinnati. That ball landed in the Allegheny River. His hardest home run in 2019, 116.2 miles an hour. That came May 22nd against Colorado. Bell had 12 home runs in 148 games last year. He's already doubled that. He is fast approaching his career high of 26, which he said back in 2017. Only one other Pirates player in franchise history has reached 25 home runs by the All-Star break, and his name was Willie Stargell. That is some pretty good company to be a part of. He's another switch hitter, but he homers more from the left side. But weirdly enough, Bell is more efficient as a home run hitter from the right-handed batter's box. He's homered seven times in 78 bats as a righty. He will square off with Ronald Acuna Jr. in the first round. The 20-year-old has hit 20 home runs in 2019. His longest this year, 
466 feet May 10th in Phoenix. His hardest hit home run, 114.3 miles an hour, April 16th against Arizona. He hit 26 homers as a rookie last year. His 20 before the All-Star break this year are tied for 6th all-time by a player under the age of 21. Acuna is another exit velocity legend. In fact, his exit velo on average is 108.2 miles an hour. That's on average among his home run hits. That is fifth among players with 10 long bombs this season. His average home run distance, 421 feet. How about that? Now, he's not going to have to worry about seeing breaking stuff this evening. But weirdly enough, Acuna has been fine against breaking balls. 12 of his 20 home runs this year have come against breaking stuff. Those are your eight participants in tonight's MLB Home Run Derby. Again, our coverage begins at 8 here on ESPN-UP. With that, we are out of time. I appreciate you tuning in as always, and I hope to have you back on tomorrow. Same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central. We've got the Derby to break down, maybe even the Celebrity All-Star Game, and we've got the MLB All-Star Game to preview. All that and more coming up tomorrow here on ESPN-UP. Signing off, I'm Tanner Hoops. Thanks for tuning in to Sports Pen.